Hear the word of the Lord. So now, if you faithfully obey me and stay true to my covenant, you will be my most precious possession out of all the peoples, since the whole earth belongs to me. You will be a kingdom of priests for me and a holy nation. These are the words you should say to the Israelites. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, a rock and our redeemer. Amen. So my kids are, are 7 and 10, and one of my favorite things to do is just to hear them talk to each other um, that we're not a part of, and they have these conversations. And one of the things, the two main conversations they have has to do with crushes. Who has them? What's going on? What's the deal with crushes? Um, sometimes Dominic, our older son, says he's a, a crush detective, and so he can look out and see who has, see who has a crush going on. And the other thing is, is, is the cool kids. It's like, who are the cool kids? What are they doing? Who are the popular kids? And this, this universal of, of a, a, apparently humanity, there's always a, a set of whatever school you're at, there's a set of cool kids that are set apart. How you define them varies from place to place, but it is fairly universal. There's, there's some kids that are a little more known, more popular than others. Some kids, it seems, are more favored by the teachers or the staff than others. There are in-groups and out-groups. When it comes to the church and the world, is the church an in-group or an out-group or neither? My friends, we are continuing our series on the Apostles' Creed, that historic doctrinal statement of faith, looking at how in the creed, God encapsulates God's love for us, what is revealed in the scriptures about who God is, how God created everything, who Jesus is, how we are in need, how Jesus saves us, and what we should do about it. And today, the phrase, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. The word Catholic is pretty weighted in our language today. This is one of the more confusing lines of the creed. Now, what do you mean, Pastor Wilson, by the Holy Catholic Church? This is a question I've received many times in my ministry. Do we mean, I believe in the Holy Capital C Catholic Church with like the Pope and, and bishops and unmarried priests and things like that? And quite frankly, no, that is not, it's not a proper noun. Catholic in the creed is not a proper noun. It doesn't refer to a single entity. It is an adjective that basically means universal. It basically means that, it doesn't truly mean that. It comes from the Greek word katholikos, which is itself the combination of two words, a preposition, kata, which means about, and holos, which means the whole. So it's about the whole, of the whole. It was two words that were later turned into one. It was probably first, when it was, when it was first uh, said, it was said as two words, and over the centuries it was, it was combined into one word. And in the old Methodist hymn, hymnal, there's an asterisk, by Catholic, and it goes down with a footnote that says universal, just to make sure people, um, people aren't confused. Asterisks on PowerPoints aren't as helpful. Um, footnotes I found in my, my ministry, but it's still, you know, this question, why don't we use a different word? Why don't we use a less confusing word? And the main reason that I give and I try to give is that you know, if, if Jesus is the word of God, the word made flesh, words matter in a particular way in Christianity. 
Catholic doesn't quite mean universal. It's not, it's not the same thing. It doesn't mean everywhere. When we say, I believe in the holy Catholic church, it's the whole of the thing, the whole of the church in different places. The statement of belief in the creed is that there is a church that is set apart. That is what holy means. It is something that is set apart. A church that is set apart and that is in a whole in some way. And in our world today, filled with denominations, it is hard to imagine the church as a whole. It's worth remembering that denomination itself is just, is just a word for name. And so if a name, it's a named church. So a non-denominational church is a church without a name. It's a non-named church. Um, denominations don't have this extra meaning beyond just it's, it's named in this way, but they have baggage. Denominations have baggage. They have baggage and history and legacy costs and there are complicated histories and, and legacy costs with, with, all, with all of these names. The history of, of this, this denomination, the United Methodist Church, is long and complicated. The church is a few years older than the United States of America and the Constitution. And so the, the United Methodist Church was founded in 1784. The U.S. Constitution was finally ratified in 1788. And the church has changed a lot since then. The, the United States has changed a lot since then. In in the early 19th century, Methodism was the largest denomination in the United States. It was growing like wildfire. And part of the reason for this was, was a structural one, that you didn't need a preacher to plant one church. At most other denominations, you had one pastor, one church model. With Methodists, we had the circuit, circuit writer system. So one pastor could plant five or ten churches and visit them. And so as, as America spread west, as it opened up, into Kentucky, Tennessee, as it opened up into um, the Louisiana Purchase and other spaces like that, and into Texas, one pastor would go in and plant a number of different churches. There was a, um, a man, a Reverend Haney in our area, planted, I think, like 15 churches. There's a Haney's Chapel on the other side of Austin, but there are a number of different churches throughout, planted by this one man who would go and start a congregation in these um, communities of mostly uh, like Czech and German immigrants. On the frontiers, these were provincial churches. They weren't highfalutin downtown churches. There wasn't a downtown Methodist church for many, many, many years. And what, one of the mo more confusing things about Methodists in general is why the name stuck. Why is it called Methodist? Even today, it sounds like an insult. It's not like a compliment. Oh, you Methodist. That doesn't sound like a very... Um, uh, kind phrase for a person. It started as a, like a really fancy insult, like a highfalutin Oxford insult, that Charles Wesley was meeting with some friends as he was an undergrad, and they were trying to be holy. They started a club called the Holy Club. Um, he was a very literal-minded person, and he asked his older brother, John, to help out and help them to be holy. John had already graduated, and so John developed these 22 questions for them to ask themselves about how they were with God, what was their life with God, how were they seeking God in all things, and seeking God to seeking to serve others in all things. But the insult didn't come from this kind of method. It came back to like ancient Greek medicine. So it's an ancient Greek medical insult um, that was going on. There was a one group of ancient doctors who followed Galen, and Galen thought that only the proper person, only the person of the right breeding could be a doctor. You had to be of a certain class to be a doctor. Otherwise, you couldn't do it. Nobody could do it. Um, the Methodists thought that anybody could be a doctor, that anybody, if you trained, 
If you trained for it, if you studied for it, you could do it. It didn't matter who your parents were, that you had this opportunity. And so the first, the first people who insulted um, the Wesleys were like, no, you're tr- you're, you think that, that coal miner can be a holy person. He can't be a holy person. You think that prisoner can be a holy person. He can't be a holy person. And so that's why they appropriated it. It's like, yes, anybody has the opportunity to have their hearts changed by God. We're not going to limit the transformation that the Holy Spirit can do on people's lives. Anyone can seek God and seek holiness. Now, the the name is confusing, and it has a legacy like the word Catholic in the creed. It seems like it would simplify things to change it. But the question for us, for the church, and what we call the church and things like that, should always come back to Scripture. And I think a lot of it starts out in the passage that, that Deb read a little earlier. Our first understanding of the church comes before in in Genesis with God calling Abraham, God calling Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees over to the promised land. And then with Isaac and Jacob and and Jacob's children, sons, and, and they go to Egypt and then they become slaves in Egypt. And then God calls Moses. God calls Moses to set the people free. And that's the founding of the people of Israel, the founding of this nation, which God is going to covenant with. And that's when we get to Exodus 19. So now if you faithfully obey me and stay true to my covenant, you will be my most precious possession out of all the peoples, since the whole earth belongs to me. You will be a kingdom of priests for me and a holy nation. God covenants to this particular people in order to bless the world. But as we go from Exodus 19 all the way to the end of Malachi, the story of The Old Testament, unfortunately, is the story of the disobedience of this people, which God just promised. Again and again, God blesses the people. The people spurn the blessing. God judges the people. The people spurn the judges too. Consequences too. People return to God. And the cycle happens again. And we go again and again. The Messiah, the anointed one of God, breaks this cycle by completing the cycle, the purpose of the covenant is for the coming of the Son of God into the world. And now the promise of Exodus 19 and the blessing is no longer exclusive to a single nation. It's no longer about this in-group, but offered openly to the whole earth, which belongs to God. This is really what Epiphany is about, Epiphany Sunday. It's not just about the wise men or the magi, but what they represent. It is the, the, the showing, the revealing of God's God's true purpose in Jesus Christ to the whole world. They are the first Gentiles who seek Christ, who understand that something amazing is happening. One of the older names for, for Epiphany is the, feast of the, mani- the feast, feast of the Mystery of the Manifestation of Our Lord Jesus Christ to All People. It's, Epiphany is a little shorter of a phrase, but, but that's, that's what is being celebrated in this revealing of God to all people to be included in, in God's people. The day when we celebrate the coming of these magi, they're the first Gentiles to acknowledge the, the lordship of Jesus Christ. They treat him like a lord. They give gifts like a lord. And in Christ, the church has been opened up to all. There's no longer an in-group and an out-group. There's no longer a cool kids table in the cafeteria to talk about. We are all in need of Jesus. 
But as well, there's no longer a need for conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, it's a longer passage, but I think it's very important. Christ is our peace. He made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. With his body, he broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. He canceled the detailed rules of the law so that he could create one new person out of the two groups, making peace. As God's household, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets of Christ himself as the cornerstone. The whole building is joined together in him and it grows up into a temple that is dedicated to the Lord. Christ is building you into a place where God lives through the Spirit. God is building. Christ is building you. Not Christ has built, past tense. Christ is building, active, continuous. Christ is building you into a place where God lives through the Spirit. Two chapters later, Paul clarifies this in Ephesians 4. Therefore, I encourage you to live as people worthy of the call you have received from God. Conduct yourselves with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Accept each other with love and make an effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit with the peace that ties you together. You are one body and one Spirit, just as God also called you in one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. We have here the four marks of the church as they are historically understood. One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The church is found where these four things are found. I'm going to take them in, in a reverse order, starting with, with one baptism. Not only is today Epiphany Sunday, it's also the, the, the baptism of the Lord Sunday. We get, a, we get a twofer in the church calendar. We celebrate the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. It is a fitting day to think about baptism. The church has one baptism, not two or three. Baptism is not an individual act. It's not this, this volitional act of our mind. Baptism is dying in Christ's death and rising in Christ's life. Baptizing twice is a claim contrary to Ephesians. There's one baptism. The Bible itself, unfortunately, never gives super clear instructions for baptism. It would have solved a lot of Christian denominational conflict over the last 2,000 years if there was like, this is how to baptize. These are the things to do. These are the qualifications. But it's not, it's not really found there. We have examples of baptism. We have the baptism of Jesus. We have uh, this amazing baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts where um, Philip explains the, all of the Old Testament to him. And he's like, why should I not be baptized? And so right then, they're baptized. We have the baptism of a number of families throughout the whole Testament, including the children as well. The different traditions of baptism come after the Bible. But what Paul is saying here is there is one baptism because God is one. And wherever, whenever you were baptized, wherever you were baptized, it counted because it was about God. It was about God and not you. Baptism is our entry into the church, not through our will, but God's through God's amazing grace. The next mark of the church is one faith. We have come to understand what this one faith is through, through the creeds, through, through this dis, distillation of, of belief. There's, there's two understandings of faith. There's the, the faith as the content of, of belief, but also the faith in our Savior, the actual active act of that. Our faith is in the triune God, not another God. 
the church has this one faith, not multiple faiths. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ has saved us. It shows us how we can be faithful, offered us mercy and forgiveness and new life. This is part of being the church, being the body of Christ, living a new way of life marked by one faith, living by faith and not by sight, living in a way that only makes sense because Christ is risen. The next one is our one Lord, one Lord. The church is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The church serves Jesus Christ. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot serve Christ and, and yourself. The church's one Lord is Jesus Christ. The church proclaims the reign of God. The church is the place where Jesus is seen as Lord, and we are not. Authority comes from God and not from us. And where the reign of God is proclaimed, not the reign of me or whomever I might want at the time. And finally, the last mark of the church is one hope. Baptism is how we enter the church. One faith is how we believe. One Lord is who we are and whose we are. And one hope is where we are going. Our hope is in the ultimate justice of God, the righteousness of God, that God will make all things new, that the promises of God that we see revealed in the scriptures, that we have felt in our hearts transformed, will take place over the whole world. The church is not a gathering of convenience. Our belief is not in individual churches, but there, there is a church set apart as a whole that Christ is building actively. Christ has opened the church, his own body, to us all. We have been offered a space here. We are under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the judgment of Christ in this in-between time, after resurrection and before our final hope. And it takes faith to believe in this church. It takes faith to believe in this holy Catholic church, to believe in the presence of God in the world beyond those whom we individually see and know and understand. A lot of churches today function more like, like corporations than like ecclesial bodies of Christ. They serve their shareholders slash members. They have a transactional relationship going on. But to believe in the Holy Catholic Church is to believe in Christ acting beyond what we see. It is to believe that Christ is acting in places we don't see and to trust that God is there. Again, the story of Israel is the story of the faithlessness of man and the faithfulness of God. The story of the church continues that. So often is the story of the faithlessness of man and the faithfulness of God. Our faith is not in ourselves or institutions or our abilities or capacities, but in Jesus Christ, our Lord who seeks us, who heals us when we are sick, who calls us together despite ourselves to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. Let us pray. Gracious God, in Jesus Christ, baptized by John in the Jordan, you came to share our life and deliver us from sin and death. As we are baptized with water, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to make us your beloved children. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.